This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Hello, and welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we are seeking to learn how to faithfully doing good better. And it's an honor to get to do that with you who are listening and with colleagues and with friends. Really grateful that today we get to do this with Leah Kral. Leah is Senior Director of Strategy and Innovation at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. She's an expert facilitator and author who helps nonprofits innovate and further social change. And this year, we've been doing this theme of innovation through our podcast, Innovation and Vocation. So we're really grateful to dive into innovation with a real expert on this topic. Her most recent book is Innovation for Social Change, How Wildly Successful Nonprofits Inspire and Deliver Results. Leo, we're grateful that you are here on The Better Samaritan with us today. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie and Kent. I'm delighted to be here. So Leah, I wanted to start because I thought this is a way for us to get to know you a little bit, as well as to dive in the topic to ask, how did you get into this? What led to your passion for innovation, especially innovation with nonprofits? <laughs> yeah, I had some sort of wild twists and turns in my career. So <laughs> yeah, I started out in the for-profit world. I'm originally from Northeast Ohio and just kind of surrounded by industry, automotive, aeronautics. And so just because that was what I was around, I thought, oh, this is what I'll end up doing. And and, you know, I was working in quality systems and engineering and learning those things, but it just wasn't probably my vocation or my true mm -hmm. calling and something felt off, but I didn't know what. And my husband, who is just far more adventurous than I am, had this dream of experiencing overseas development work. So we applied to, I'm like, okay, I'm not sold on this, but that I'm going through this career uncertainty. So let's explore this. So we applied as a married couple and got into the Peace Corps and we lived in Jamaica for two years. <laughs> and that was just an incredible life-changing experience. There were a lot of highs and lows there, you know, lows just experiencing a very, very serious poverty, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you've seen in a lot of your work in disaster relief. But then also the heroes, people rising to the occasion. I always think of that was a Fred Rogers quote around September 11th that in times of crisis, we look for the helpers. And I saw that and it moved me. And I just couldn't get that out of my mind. So that whole experience just kind of rocked my world. And it got me interested in, you know, how do we solve these things? And what are real solutions to poverty? And so from then on, I, I knew I wanted to work with people doing that important work of philanthropy and social change. And in hindsight, I'm really glad I got to have a foot in both of those worlds, the world of the private sector and the great management thinkers that I just get so jazzed about and love to nerd out of reading people like Drucker and Covey and Deming mm -hmm. and this world of philanthropy. And so I just set out to combine the intersection of those two worlds, entrepreneurially solving problems and building empowered teams with the best management frameworks out there, but tailored thoughtfully for the nonprofit workplace. And over time, I became good at testing and translating best practices for those doing the hard work of building civil society. And that's been my passion ever since. That's great. So what would you say then out of those experiences are the ones maybe most closely tied to really spark this new book that you've just written? Hmm, so many, so many, let's see, most closely tied. It's hard to just pick one. And there, all these stories are in the book, you know, ranging from Mayo Clinic, Habitat for Humanity, my own kind of misadventures sometimes in the Peace Corps, things that just, you know, hard lessons where you just, you learn the hard way, you know, like I write in the book about 
as a Peace Corps volunteer, we were all so gung ho and looking for projects. And we had this trash cleanup day and, you know, spent a hot Saturday, all of us American volunteers sweating in the Jamaican sun. And we were so proud of ourselves for cleaning up this ravine and patting ourselves on the back. And then two weeks later, it was full of trash. And the hard lesson, Mm -hmm. which is probably so common, right? You can have all these good intentions, but, you know, if it's not coming bottom up from the community itself, if you're not having those conversations with them, your project's probably not going to work out so well. So just so many stories like that, that, you know, stick with me and that I still use in my daily work with teams. We'll be diving into solutions that you found in this work that you talk about and thought, oh, let's, like, we pause at the beginning, not pause, but sort of keep going at the beginning. And how would you diagnose the problem in a sense that your book addresses is if there isn't enough innovation and enough effectiveness? And why do you think that is in the nonprofit sector? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Most of the webinars that I do, I always ask that question of, you know, in workshops and in webinars and ask folks, what do you think gets in the way of innovation or, or even taking a step backward? What do we mean by innovation in the nonprofit space? And so I usually I like to define innovation as well, it can be big or small. Innovation in the social change space could be really big, like the civil rights movement, you know, really changed the political landscape and affected a lot of people. But nonprofit innovation can also be really small, like a let's say you figured out shifting from a paper-based intake system to an iPad. That's still innovation. And we want to see both kinds. Mm -hmm. Then I like to ask people doing the work, frontline people doing the work, well, what gets in the way? And they'll say all sorts of things that you would expect, like some things are kind of outside of our control and some are in our control, like fear, right? Just fear of speaking up is something that's in us that we could do something about. But things that can be outside of our control, like bureaucracy or you know, we see these challenges a lot in the nonprofit space of, I call it kind of the fog of good intentions. I love this quote by Stephen Covey that we could be climbing up the ladder, but is the ladder leaning up against the right wall in the first place? And how do we know, you know, so getting through that fog could be challenging. We have things like mission creep or people not being empowered, right? So, I mean, I could, we could name 40 things. I actually have it as a kind of a diagram in one of my PowerPoints, just like a big, huge word cloud with all these things, right? That you know, compassion fatigue. I'm sure you two have run across many things. So I think naming the dragon, you know, naming those things and uh, not shoving it under the rug, but let's be clear. Yes, these things get in the way. And then uh, what the book really does try to do is acknowledge those and then start to unpack. Now, what can we do about those? Let's take them apart one by one. And I think the book does a pretty good job of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's a great book. I know I just discovered it, but I I teach an NGO leadership course and have a good book sort of on this topic, but that book might get replaced by your book here in the next semester. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What are your, and thought then we can sort of hang some of the upcoming conversation and stories on this, but could you talk about your six principles for social change innovation? That gives us a little bit of a structure for the conversation. Yeah, I've got the book right here. Yeah. So I came up with these after I wrote the book in its entirety and then just tried to summarize these key Mm -hmm. principles. So the first one is like a detective, be a fearless and relentless problem solver and identify hidden needs. Mm -hmm. So that's really, I think so much just starts from that. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And I've got a whole chapter on that in the book and figuring that out and thought exercises. The second is ideate. We want to start small, but dream big. Whether we're designing modest experiments or identifying partners and building ecosystems for social change, you want to boldly think through where you want to go and how you might get there. And that's getting at what's scalable. Maybe your big, small idea is bigger than you think. The third, unlock potential. Create a collaborative workplace culture that leaves room for experiment and play, for spontaneity and discovery. 
The fourth is unlock even more potential by empowering bottom-up decision makers, encouraging savvy risk-taking, and reward tough-minded trade-off thinking. So I work with a lot of economists, so you're going to see a little bit of <laughs> economics sprinkled throughout this book. Although I'm not an economist myself, but I think I just absorbed a lot right. by osmosis <laughs> for working with them for 18 years. The fifth is clarify what's working and what's not through continuous learning and stress testing to accelerate your impact. We want to build a common sense evaluation approach that supports agility, experimentation, and team learning. And metrics can be disastrous. Sometimes there's so many ways to do it wrong, but there's great ways to do it right to create a meaningful, actionable feedback loop. And the sixth then is persuasion. We have to be really good at this in the nonprofit space. You know, a lot of us may have good ideas, but we need those good ideas to stand out from the crowd. We've got to secure resources and win buy-in. So those are the kind of six key principles that are then sprinkled throughout the book, mm -hmm. but with very practical real world stories. Yeah, I really appreciate those six principles. And one of the things I really liked in your book and your thinking is, you know, there's been increasing in the last 10, 20 years, like the importance of metrics in nonprofits and understanding what we're doing and measuring, which is great. But then I found for, you know, medium and small nonprofits, which is a lot of nonprofits, a lot of people do this work. If you think, oh, then I have to do a $300,000 randomized control trial, like how am I ever <laughs> going to innovate well? But one of the things I like about you is you have like that, we should have that rigor of thinking, but that you give us, give people a way to think in their nonprofits, oh, we can do this in a scalable way. So one of the things I thought, and it goes right off of that. So jumping ahead, I think a couple of the principles, but can you talk about that innovation idea? And you even have a graph with your book of sort of the ideating that goes through three questions and then how do you make it actionable? But I think that goes well because it's something that compassion or world vision or international rescue committee could use, but also the nonprofit <laughs> with two full-time and three part-time <laughs> people can use as well. Yes, I'm a big fan of stealing good ideas wherever you see them. And so I was really inspired when I started digging into the company Pixar and what makes Pixar so successful. And, and most people know about Pixar, you know, their movies have won 23 Academy Awards, some of the most highest grossing animated films of all time, like Toy Story. So what is the secret to their success? And is there anything we might be able to steal from them for us and nonprofits? So I say yes. So at Pixar, teams are expected to give what they call brutal feedback to each other, brutal. A Pixar executive says that they assume early on, I'm quoting now, early on, all of our movies suck. And the, jo <laughs> the, jo the job of the creative feedback process is to get the movie from suck to unsuck. <laughs> and so that language, it's a little bit shocking. I'm like, what? But that same executive then goes on to explain that, importantly, everyone in the room knows that the questions raised must be in the spirit of making the creative product as good as it possibly can be. And of course, without the manager setting the tone as a safe space, that kind of tough love feedback process would never get off the ground. So how do they do this? Well, they use a creative process called design thinking. And design thinking has been around a long time. It's been used commonly by a lot of marketing and design firms. But there are definitely some parallels, I think, to designing a movie and designing nonprofit programs and interventions. And we can definitely translate design thinking techniques for our own use. So that diagram you mentioned in my book is kind of the Leah version of design thinking that I've kind of used with teams through my own trial and error just to figure out, well, what's going to resonate here? What isn't what actually works for us? So design thinking is a process for exploring what's possible and thinking creatively and strategically. So with design thinking, or at least the Leah version of it, um, we're asking ourselves three questions. 
what's desirable, what's scalable, and what's feasible. Like those six principles, you Mm -hmm. might hear a little bit of that in there. So those three questions are the thinking part. And then there's a fourth question, which is the action part. And so once we've done all that thinking, the fourth question then is, how might we design pilots and small experiments? Mm. And so I'll just briefly go over each really quickly. But so the what's desirable is what is the problem we're trying to solve? Are we good at identifying hidden needs? And teams really struggle with this. I think of that Henry Ford quote that goes something like, if I would have asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. You know, <laughs> so as we're we're doing this hard work in the nonprofit space, like the people we're serving probably aren't going to just come up to us with the idea wrapped up in a big red bow of, oh, Mr. Mrs. Nonprofit person, here's exactly what I need you to do. Mm-hmm. We have to figure it out. We have to do a little detective work. And I've got stories in the book, for example, of uh, Grayston Bakery is a really, really unique workforce development nonprofit and how they actually did immersion experiences of living and as homeless people in the street for a few weeks to better design their programs to really uncover those hidden needs, which is a fantastic story. And I think that's so important because by being clear about the specific social problem we intend to solve, then everything we do at cascades from that. My book includes a chapter on each of those four design thinking questions along with stories from real world nonprofits. And those are, they're really designed as thought exercises that you can either take your team through, or you can just kind of do yourself as you're reading the book with back of the envelope, this, you know, thought exercises for yourself. Jamie and I like to do this more, but we usually like to skip one of your three questions. It's just like, what's desirable and what's scalable? And then you know, what's feasible? <laughs> we usually forget about that partway part down, the, down the road. Yeah. When you think about like back when you asked me, what are some common problems of nonprofits that burnouts, compassion, fatigue being spread too thin? It's so common because, you know, our hearts are in it. You know, you're nonprofits and you're full of compassion. There's so many things you want to do, but limited resources. So the What's Feasible chapter takes you through some thought exercises to come back down to earth and think about, is this a battle we can win? You know, or maybe I see this a lot. Maybe we can't do this all by ourselves. Maybe we need partners and allies. And what would that look like? So, yeah, it's really important. It's not as fun, right? A what's feasible <laughs> question, but but it's important. No, it, it is important. <laughs> well, if we could stay there for just a moment, the not as fun part of what you just said. So, you know, as I was hearing what you were sharing there about, you know, the, a lot of groups have challenges coming up sometimes with the ideas, or maybe they don't have their ears to the ground quite close enough to be able to see what's really kind of happening in terms of challenges people are facing. But what about for groups that flip that the other direction where maybe they have lots of ideas, they see those trends, but they have a hard time of actually executing them? How do we get into that part of innovation? Yeah, I think that's a good segue into thinking about experiments. So I'm a big believer, like that fourth question in the diagram, like when we start thinking about it's so smart to design things as small experiments or pilots before taking on, you know, biting off more than we can chew. So, you know, you think about how we're often building the plane while flying in nonprofits and and our dazzling idea may or may not work. We have to find out. So what we can do is maybe break whatever your big vision is into smaller chunks or smaller experiments so that we can adjust and scale before we grow our idea. So a really good story of that that I, I like is World Reader. 
They're a nonprofit with a mission to bring digital books to disadvantaged children and their families. And when they launched in 2010, they began several experiments at the same time. So in one experiment, they gave Kindle, Amazon, e-reader machines or tablets to a small group of elementary students in Ghana. But what they found was that when the children would play during recess, the devices kept breaking. But at the same time, the team was experimenting with a mobile app. And what they learned from observation, that ended up working better. So the young users actually much preferred the mobile app over the Kindle e-reader. And now today, almost 200,000 users a month are reading books on the mobile platform. And I think there's some really good lessons to unpack with that story. They were very smart to spread their bets. If World Reader just would have gone all in on the Kindle you know, device, which they thought was really promising, but they might have never discovered the far better solution with the mobile app. So to me, the lesson is it's far better to fail fast and fail small before investing too big. Experimentation helps us learn and innovate. But with that, we have to build in some expectation and toleration of failure. And that's really got to come right from the top and from the board. It's so important for leaders and organizations to have the right attitude towards risk and failure. And a brief story I love from the Hewlett Foundation. The Hewlett Foundation offers this kind of door prize to grants officers. It's called, tell us about the worst grant from which you learned the most. Hmm. And I just think that's very humanizing, you know, recognizing just look, you know, we're we're going to take risks. We're not always going to get it right. And let's be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit, just acknowledge these, get rid of the culture of fear so that we can learn from each other. Where I work at the Mercatus Center, I'm very thankful that we have a board of directors that tells us, look, it's okay to fail. We expect you to come to the board meeting and tell us some of those stories of failure and tell us how you're learning and adjusting. So that's set right from the top. So to your question you know, about the action part, I just think that's such an important aspect is you know, if you can, try ways of breaking up your big idea into smaller pilots and experiments that you can learn and adjust. But let me check in and make sure I answered what you're hoping I would there. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> the other thing too, I made me realize Kent and I are going to have to pilot a new innovative idea. So you mentioned about the award from Hewlett Packard. I've been trying to convince Kent that we need to start a peer-reviewed journal of insignificant findings. <laughs> you know, so, or And then he had the idea of like memos and and then it led to emails you know, so we're just trying to find a way to increase our CVs. So. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> I love how you describe that, Leanne, just underlining this for myself, but also for people listening about failing fast, failing small. One book that was helpful for me a long time ago was Tim Harford's book on how success always starts with failure. I think that might be this. I can't remember if that's the title or the subtitle, but I like yeah, it. his, Jamie and I've talked about this, but it's sort of how to fail well. Oh, well, now I'm on the spot if I can remember the three principles, but it was like, always keep trying new things, make sure you're, the failure you're going to have is survivable, you know, and then to make sure you learn from it. But there are, he said them better than that, but these sort of three principles of <laughs> yeah. failing well that leads to I success. I'll definitely look for that book. Yeah, 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 that reminds me of, I probably won't get it exactly right, but there's a quote from Thomas Edison, something like, I haven't failed. I've only found 10,000 ways that won't work. <laughs> and I think, of course, you know, <laughs> like uh, that just comes with discovery and breakthroughs is that, you know, you're not going to get it right, right out of the gate every <laughs> single time. And that's just part of experimentation and learning. Yeah. And then the, how important the leadership, which helps to set culture and that the whole culture is to do this. I think it's fantastic the way you highlight 
that thinking of this one to just pivot slightly, but I think you can weep through everything we're talking about. How for you, as you've worked with and in your book, you talk about a number of faith-based nonprofits. How do you see faith playing a part kind of as you've looked at this in your own life in this sector? And then as you look at nonprofits who are doing this kind of work of innovation, how do you think faith I guess one way, you know, you go in a different direction, but maybe, you know, how can faith be a hindrance and sort of as an approach, not faith itself, but sort of as a worldview or approach or with donors and different pressures and how might faith be something that can help people and work towards innovation? That's a wonderful question. A lot of philosophy embedded in your question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, in my own life. So I was not a person of faith. You know, when uh, my husband and I were in Jamaica, it's like God had his own designs for me, of course. And so uh, I was assigned to a teacher's college that was run by Franciscan nuns. (laughs) So I was, you know, agnostic, smarty pants, like many people coming out of college, thought I knew it all and uh, was very skeptical about people of faith. And these nuns just kind of, they're, what do they say? Preach always, if necessary, use words. They were like that, right? They never proselytized. They just ran this beautiful, amazing school and had great respect from their students. You know, in the middle of a very violent community, they were running this spectacular school. So I was just impressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had all these kind of secret tests in my mind, like, oh, I'm just sooner or later, they're going to proselytize me. I just know it, right? But they never did. And my respect grew. And that planted a seed, you know, and it took me a while, probably took me five or six years after that. But through a lot of reading, I eventually found my way to faith. Mm -hmm. So I would say the book is full of stories and it's written for anyone, whether they're a person of faith or not. Mm -hmm. But I have to say like the very best stories of nonprofits doing amazing things. And at least in my book were stories of where faith was kind of the root that launched the nonprofit. And I write about that. So you see it with Habitat for Humanity, with the Southern Christian Leadership Association, Fred Rogers, I could go on and on, but those are just You know, it's usually starting from someone who's just Mayo Clinic was another great story like that, where, you know, someone's just very committed to compassion and seeing some need right in front of Alcoholics Anonymous, another, they'll keep popping into my mind, where someone just sees this need based out of compassion, and they just are so called, you know, to to come forward and do something about it. And, you know, it's, I don't know, I'm meandering a little bit, but I think that those are some of the most compelling stories of nonprofit successes. And I'm I'm trying to think of what gets in the way of, uh, or what would be a drawback. Maybe it's just thinking of back in my day where I was the agnostic smarty pants. Some people may tune us out. They may see that, you know, faith label and just, it's a turnoff to them. And they might be like, ah, I'm not going to support this organization. So maybe Mm -hmm. that's a, I don't know you know, people come kind of packaged with biases like I I had. So maybe that's part of the the challenge. One thing I'd be interested if you have thoughts, Jamie, one that just came to my mind is I'm sorry, I'm answering my own question, but it was because of your framework and (laughs) thoughts that just made me think of this for the first time. I wonder sometimes there's a pressure because we we kind of say that we're doing this out of faith and God's calling in our lives and we're sharing that story with donors and board and different people. And that's true. And then I wonder if there's sort of a pressure that we know what we're doing to be serving people well that maybe, you know, to say, oh, I've failed. So it doesn't mean, I think it can seem like, oh, did I fail in the calling God has? It's no, you didn't fail there. It's just we're human and we're experimenting and have to find our way. So I think that would be maybe part of slightly different in a 
kind of faith-based nonprofit is you're setting the culture of failure, but it's got to be within like an understanding of faith and how God's called us to this. And that means we need to experiment. That means we need to fail to love well and to serve. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I'm just thinking my mind is flipping through all these many, many stories that I they have origin stories of nonprofits and like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, really cool story of how they started and, and where they failed, completely faith-based, like their spirits were so pure, you know, with what they were trying to do with help addicts. But there were so many things they just didn't know, but they learned collaboratively and in a spirit of love, you know, and with helping each other, you know, like they didn't know at the beginning that would be helpful to be anonymous. (laughs) They learned that the hard way, like Mm -hmm. it might have been like back in the 40s, there was some very public figure, an athlete who very publicly fell off the wagon. And they're like, oh, maybe it would be a good idea if we <laughs> change our model to, you know, we're anonymous or, you know, that was at the 12 steps, right? They figured that out by doing. And I just think that's the journey, you know, and that's fine. I think it would be misguided to say, oh, because we're a faith-based organization, we've got it all figured out and we're perfect right out of the gate. I mean, that's just not human, <laughs> not normal. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> When jumping back to what you, your experience in the Peace Corps, and thanks for sharing about that, I had read, I think it was another interview or an article that you had written. I really liked this and thought, oh, a lot of people, you know, Jamie, I have a work with a master's students. We have a graduate program and love working with these students. So there are always lots of questions about vocation. And so this goes both to vocation as well as to innovation. And you talked about the nuns that you worked with. And I love you'd said this, that three things that you traits you took from them that helped them to be effective were they were curious, they were contrarian, and they were diplomatic. I love those three. I hadn't heard sort of those (laughs) three put together, but do you mind unpacking and kind of just walking through those three? Because it's great for innovation, but it's also great for kind of starting out the fact that everybody in their career, especially now, you sort of have to innovate along the way in your career. Yeah, that's so true. I've had requests to deliver talks specifically to early career nonprofit, you know, young people just getting started. And yeah, there's a chapter in the book, Find Your Innovation A Game. And it's all about like figuring that out for yourself. Yeah, the story of the nuns, like the contrarian diplomatic challenge. I'm very lucky where I work, you know, a lot of workplaces will have these organizational values, you know, and it's from five to 10 of them. And a lot of times they're just platitudes on a wall. But one of them, my organization is called the challenge culture. And that means, you know, challenging the status quo, but of course, doing it respectfully and diplomatically. So I can disagree with my boss, I'm expected to, and it's built into my performance review. So that's actually a question like, how did Leah actually represent the organization was values this year, provide an actual story and tell us the outcome of that. And so I'm incentivized. My peers will be evaluating me based on that question. And I love that. And when we recruit people and interview them, that's one of the interview questions. Tell me about a time where maybe you disagreed with, challenged the status quo or disagreed with an executive and what happened. And we're watching to see, you know, does this person just kind of throw someone else under the bus or did they take ownership for the situation? I just think that in the book, the story I gave about. So I was in in Jamaica and I was with one of these spunky little nuns and we were driving through a really, really bad neighborhood somewhere in King. Oh, it was Trenchtown where uh, Bob Marley sings about. It's where Bob Marley was from. Very dangerous. There were gunmen on like every corner. At least back then it was run by drug dons. And you know, this gunman walks out and stops. I'm with this elderly little nun and a, a gunman walks out in front of us, stops our van. 
I'm terrified. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a long way from Ohio. Am I going to like live <laughs> to tell this tale? And the nun just, just a feisty, you know, she just kind of shakes her finger in his face and, and kind of challenges him about, you know, this life of crime. But I think because the nuns had so much respect in their community, like she could kind of get away with this. Like the gunman heard her out. He kind of looked at his shoes a little bit, like he was embarrassed. <laughs> and he waved us through and like, she didn't even think about it. She was just on to the next thing. But to me, that was, you know, that challenge, diplomacy, curiosity, and, you know, how they were always experimenting to make their school a better place. So those traits really inspired me. And, you know, I just think it will help you in your career if you can model some of those traits, no matter whether you're in a nonprofit or for-profit or wherever mm-hmm. you are. Yeah, it's important to, if you're going to be contrarian, then to pair it with the diplomatic as well, just as a, rem- as a reminder. Yeah, so. when we say challenge, like it's not about dunking on somebody, right? It's really mm-hmm. about mutual learning. And we're, we're mm-hmm. trained in like phrases we could say if we're like, oh, I'm not buying what this person is. There's nice ways you could say it, you know, mm-hmm. like help me understand or now let me challenge that, but you can challenge me right back. You know, here's what I heard. Is that right? And there's very, I outline those a little bit in the book of just phrases that lead towards that kind of courteous, but respectful challenge. All right. I asked you, Leah, and then Jamie, I ask you this question as well. One of the things that struck me in the book and as you're, we've been talking together is the idea of humility that goes through that there's sort of a, but it's a kind of bold, it's a bold humility, you know, that's willing to, to try and to see opportunity and to have enough confidence to do new things, but a humility that I have to learn along the way, like this might fail. So maybe Leah first, and then Jamie next. Jamie's done some research on humility, but we'd love to hear your thoughts first, Leah, on how do you think about humility maybe as one of the qualities that can undergird good innovation? Oh, I love that question. I feel like I could speak on that for an hour, but I'll try to keep you a short <laughs> version. There's so many ways I could answer that. So yeah, one of the values I mentioned challenge, but another one is humility in my workplace. And it's a lot tied to, I would say, like intellectual humility of being willing to be wrong. And just, we don't have the answers all locked up, you know, each one of us. So that then leads to collaboration. Personally, one thing that inspires me too is uh, I'm I'm a member of a group called the Friends of St. Benedict. The rule of St. Benedict has been a rule still used by monasteries for about 1500 years. And one of the core tenets in it is practicing humility. And they just, I feel like they hit it out. St. Benedict hits it out of the park with how he writes about this. And I think it's just a core part of being a person of faith, you know, and it's hard. It's hard sometimes, you know, that pride is such a, we have so much baggage with our human pride, but yeah, I could go on and on, but that was my short answer. (laughs) (laughs) How about for you, Jamie, how do you see humility kind of linking to some of the things we've been talking with Leah about? Yeah. So we actually just had an article accepted and just came out recently in Frontiers looking at the impact of humanitarian aid leader humility on their teams. And so found that it helped to decrease stress. It improved cohesion among their teams and that it also improved their ability to work toward their mission together. And so I kind of heard that those same sort of themes flowing really throughout how you've talked about innovation, about having to have that ability to fail. And it also kind of reminded me of one of the studies that we did right before that 
that was we were trying to like norm our measures was we actually started in hospitals because they were a little easier to study than, you know, trying to study these different agencies in 16 different countries. And so we started there and we were looking at organizational culture and safety and found that people were felt comfortable that they could bring to their leaders of, hey, I made this mistake and that it was accepted, not something that was just punished. And because it was accepted, let's learn from it. Then they would have those things come forward rather than them snowballing into worse problems. Oh, I love that. I can't wait to read that article. That's yeah, very interesting. I think me. you're the first person that's ever said, hey, I'd love to read that. <laughs> your mom. No, your mom and me. Your mom <laughs> and me. Both me. <laughs> oh, yeah, like Edward Deming. He's probably, of all the writers who've most influenced me, you know, he's considered the father of quality systems. And he was part of the Japanese miracle, right? When the Japanese kind of uh, cleaned our clocks in the automotive industry, you know, he was part of that. And it's systems thinking. And there's, I care, might be like 10 key tenets of a sentence thinking, but one was a culture of no fear, which is exactly what you're talking about. Like innovation is just so much more likely when people aren't afraid to speak up. And I remember giving an example in the book of, so if you're a leader, you know, you're holding kind of the cards, you have a lot more power, people may be fearful. And there's things you can do to encourage people to speak up. Like one of them was the example, think of Bob Ross, right? When Bob Ross was uh, painting on television and he (laughs) would mess up right in the moment, he'd be like, oh, it's just a happy little mistake and kind of laugh about it. And so we as, as leaders can set that tone to like, you know what, you guys, I kind of messed up last week and just be open about it so that, you know, you're lessening that culture of fear and making people realize, okay, I can speak up here. It's a safe space. So I I love that. I can't wait to read it. (laughs) (laughs) And How does your thinking on innovation connect with your understanding of the need to really emphasize the theory of change? Ooh, so yeah, theory of change is kind of, that's a big topic. But I feel like we have to be clear what we're trying to do in the first place before we even get into metrics. I I learned this the hard way. Like I first started in my role at Mercatus, my job was I was the metrics person. But what I realized pretty quickly in working with teams is we can design all these metrics and fancy ways of evaluating. But if we're not clear on what we're trying to do in the first place, then we're just kind of wasting our time, you know, so getting that When I think of theory of change, you know, it's often it's kind of like the if then, you know, if we do this, then we think that will happen. So it's every nonprofit is basically a hypothesis. It's a guess. You're like, if I'm Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it would be something like I think the 12 steps and having a model where people are anonymous is going to then you know, help people with addiction, Mayo Clinic, any nonprofit, right? You can not just at the programmatic level, but at the organization as a whole level, there's a theory of change. So I share those examples and stories in the book, kind of break them apart and unpack them so that, because that sounds a little intimidating if, if someone's like, okay, now it's time for you to go figure out your theory of change. So I think having those stories is really helpful. So I sort of unpack that in the book. And Martin Luther King talks about how the civil rights movement discovered its theory of change. So I've got that story in the book. And there's this wonderful quote from him. Faith is about taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. And then an economist I was talking to said, you know, you can think of a nonprofit's theory of change sort of like the way an architect looks at a model, you know, a little model of a house. It helps you kind of think about what are we trying to do as a whole and sort of visualize it. And that's just very helpful for, you know, making sure everyone on the team is rowing in the same direction and that we're just clear about our thinking. Well, Leah, thank you for the work you do and for this conversation. And so grateful that you have this book. It feels like, you know, the five or six topics we've touched on each of them, we could go way deeper. And you have done that in this book, which is a really valuable contribution to 
our area. So I just wanted to end by asking, as you think about innovation in the nonprofit space, what makes you hopeful? So that could be either a trend or a certain like one story that you have experienced recently, a story you shared in the book or since the book has come out, but what's making you hopeful right now when you think about nonprofit work and innovation? I see nonprofits making such a difference in people's lives. Like I just blogged about this. I lost a friend last month. She was 94, lived a very full life, but her goal was to live independently and she had lost her sight. And, you know, just as I was exposed to her, I knew her for a little over almost three years and I would visit with her on Sundays and just seeing like all these wonderful nonprofit organizations that I got to see individually and close up, like it's not a nonprofit in the abstract, right? This is how it meaningfully impacts one person's life. Whether it was, you know, and some of the things were from the for-profit sector, like her Alexa, how she would program her Alexa to tell her what time it was or who was coming to visit her. Otherwise, she wouldn't have known. Hmm. There's a little phone app now called Be My Eyes, which is you can kind of point if you're a person who uh, can't see, you can point the phone at, say, your cupboard and either a human being or AI will tell you, oh, the can of, of tomatoes is a little bit to your right, you know, and hmm. So how can you not be optimistic or world reader, right? All of these stories, I think, just make you feel really, really optimistic because there's so many human beings like you all, you know, just aware of big societal problems and trying to do something about it. And you can do no other, right? So, so that makes me feel optimistic. Leah, thank you for your work. Thanks for this conversation. I'll recommend this book to everybody who is listening. We'll put links in the show notes to some of Leah's other work. So thanks for being with us. Leah, thank you for each of you who are listening for being with us. It's an honor to get to walk together in this journey of seeking to do good better, to keep becoming better Samaritans. Honored to do it with you. And innovation is a big part of that step-by-step. So thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?